purposes. Switching over to soteriology. Tonight, I'd like to talk about the components of redemption, just a very wide picture. We'll come back to them in detail later. And then talk about the nature of the atonement, which is the basis of redemption. Now, let me give you a warning here. The term redemption is used in two different ways. Okay? Redemption is sometimes used to talk about the entire package by which God takes sinful men and saves them and sanctifies them and makes them into the image of Christ and glorifies them and brings them into his eternal kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. The term redemption is also used in a very narrow theological sense to describe part of what happens when a person gets saved. Right? And that can be confusing. When I talk about the components of redemption right now, I'm talking about the big picture, the whole thing, the whole enchilada. Okay? In the non-technical sense, redemption has three main components. Okay? There is the... Let's see if I can get my arrow up here. The component which is justification. There is the component which is sanctification. And there is the component which is glorification. Now let's think about these a little bit. Justification is the reception of the righteousness of Christ by faith. That's the first thing that happens. Now the nature of this is that it's a legal declaration. Okay? And it's temporal quality. The way it works in time is that it's an instantaneous legal event. Bang! It happens. One moment you are not justified, the next moment you are justified. There's no partial justification. It doesn't develop. It doesn't grow. It just happens because God makes it happen in response to faith. Now, the second component is sanctification. Sanctification is transformation to conformity to the image of Christ. Its nature, and this is tricky, it's both a legal declaration. God says, you belong to me. I sanctify you to me. That's a positional concept. And it's an actual change that is progressive, that develops through time. Okay? change in what? What's changing? Okay, a change in the quality of a person. For example, when the day that I got saved, I crossed the line from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive, from being under God's condemnation to being eternally forgiven. I was still pretty much the same person I used to be. I had my old habits. My thinking had not really been changed to come into conformity with the Word of God. And since that event, which was about almost 26 years ago, I have slowly been changed by God to learn to think differently and act differently, to learn to stop loving the things that I used to love and to start loving the things that God loves. The second part of this, this actual change, which is progressive, is something that goes on through time. Okay? Now, because that is true, sanctification is both an instantaneous legal event in the sense that God declares me to belong to him, and he actually declares me to be like his son, but that's really anticipating the end of the process. But it's also a time-consuming actual process of change. Okay? So you... You grow into the image of Christ. And this takes the work of the Holy Spirit. It takes the help of the body of Christ. It takes my cooperation. It takes the transforming of my mind, the renewing of my mind through taking in Scripture. And, and this goes on our entire lives. And it's never finished until we get into the presence of Christ. So in that sense, sanctification has both instantaneous components and time-consuming components. Now, you could say that this is really two different uses of the same word, and that would be fair. 
but it has to do with being set apart to belong to God and being changed to be like Christ. I don't know if you want as an example, but sure. a, a friend was told, shared with me his testimony and he had become a Christian and he, he drank a lot. He was an alcoholic, basically. Okay. And he said, God, Can you all hear this? He said, God, I don't want to be an alcoholic anymore. Please help me. We began to get very ill every time he drank. And so God helped him. <laughs> and so that I'm in that considered a Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a perfect example. God takes us where we are, but he says, I don't like you the way you are. I want you to be like Christ. And what did he do? He cooperated, and he asked for God's help, and God did it. And it was probably unpleasant at times, because it's horrible being sick, isn't it? But the end result was good. You know, Philippians, is it 1-6? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Um, there's an interesting verse in Hebrews chapter 10 that kind of looks at the two aspects of this. Hebrews 10:14, For by one offering, he, that's Christ, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Now there's a statement there of the forever perfection of a believer. Once you become Christ's, you are forever perfect, and you're forever perfect because nothing can get in the way of God completing the process that he has begun. But he also says he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. There's a process through which we go to get to the destination that God has guaranteed we will reach. So there really are two aspects of sanctification. Now, the third component of redemption is glorification. That is the reception of a resurrection body like Christ's. Now, there are more details here. You could say it's the loss of the sinful nature. It's coming to bear the image of God in the way that we were designed to. This is an actual change, and when it happens, it will be instantaneous. Now, notice... I've put colors in here, okay? Justification is only legal. Sanctification is both legal and actual. And glorification is only actual. Isn't that interesting? There's an interesting symmetry here, okay? Justification is an instantaneous legal event. Glorification is an instantaneous actual event. And sanctification both has instantaneous and time-consuming components. That's the big picture of the work that God is accomplishing and will accomplish through the work of Christ on our behalf in his plan of redemption. Vicki? We'll or will we still learn uh, Great question. Great question. Okay. Yeah. Um, let me draw your graph here. Okay. And I apologize for the, those of you who are not mathematically minded or engineering minded. This is the way I think. Okay. I may have shown this to you before. If this is the sanctification axis, and this is 100%, meaning being like Christ in character. This is the day I was born. This is the day I was born again. This is the day I die. And this is the day I get glorified. Okay, assuming that they're separated. I live to the rapture, these two things will come together. Okay? In my... wish I had another color. I started out not like Christ at all. I come to the day when I'm born again, suddenly this line starts to go up. 
Okay? Now, on the day that I die, I don't think I'm going to reach 100%. Okay? Let's be wildly optimistic. And let's say I reach 50%. Okay? During my earthly life. And this might happen through some strange series of events. It's not a straight line. There are times when you backslide. That's when the slope of this is negative. On the day that you die, as I understand it, you go bang up here. Basically, God completes the work of sanctifying you and conforming you to the image of Christ that was not completed in your life. You lose your sin nature. You know, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, or verse 4, it says, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Okay? Then there's a time of waiting, and then you get your glorification body, or your glorified body. Now, in that sense, you won't really be 100% like him because you won't have a body. But I think in terms of your character, your, your nature, I think God completes the work right here. And I would argue again, and some of you may think this is too mathematical, that if you integrate the area under this curve, <laughs> your, your treasure in heaven is proportional to that area. And you, some of you understand what I'm talking about, right? The more effort that you make, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the dictates of the Word of God, the more you cooperate and the longer you do it, the more time you are spending bearing the image of Christ. I refuse to think that God's going to use calculus. <laughs> you refuse what? I refuse to think that God's going to use calculus. Uh, it's, it's probably multidimensional, okay? And this, you know, this is my personal heresy. But, but think about this. A believer who foolishly refuses to use the resources that God provides may be kind of creeping along down here. The area of his curve is very small. Another believer who uses those resources may be making steady progress. And the area under his curve is much larger. A believer who only gets saved down here doesn't have very long to serve. Okay? So, both the length of your life and the extent to which you cooperate with God in the power of the Holy Spirit are going to give you more time to glorify Him and to serve Him and to build up treasure in heaven. Okay? I'm sure it's not this simple. But I think it sort of works like this. Okay? But back to your question, Vicki. I think God completes what's not completed in mortal life, and he probably does it instantaneously at the moment that we go into his presence. I can't prove that from Scripture, but I think it's a reasonable inference. Okay? David? Yes? Um, I'm puzzled by that. Okay. What is legal? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because this really isn't complete. Okay? There is a declaration that you are sanctified to God. He says, you belong to me. And I should have included that in here because there is another aspect of this. Thank you. And I will correct that. Okay, any more questions on this before we move on? Is there, is there not maybe a, also a, a legal aspect of the glorification? That we have a, a positional aspect that in Romans 8? Well, okay, he says you are glorified, essentially. I would, I would probably take that as a proleptic statement, a statement of the certainty of it happening. I'm not inclined to say that we are that we are legally glorified. I'm more inclined to say that God says it's going to happen and it can't not happen rather than to say it really has already occurred. 
Some might disagree with me on that, but I, I think that's a proleptic statement. I'd have to think about it some more. Okay, let's talk about the atonement. Okay, the atonement is the foundation of redemption. We're going to talk about its nature tonight concerning the need and the purpose of the atonement, some Old Testament illustrations of the atonement, what I believe is a correct view of the nature of the atonement, some false views on the atonement. I think it's very helpful to look at false views to help us clarify the correct view. Yes? Okay, I will. Um, let's see. Do I have a definition of one of my slides? I think I do further. Hang on a second. Okay. The atonement is the work that Christ did to satisfy God's wrath for sin and to pay the penalty for man's sin so that we could be saved. It's what brings forgiveness to sinful men. His death on the cross is where the atonement was accomplished. Yes. You know, it's funny. I think I lost a slide here. I really do. I think I had one with a definition and left it out. I'm sorry. Okay, objections to the substitutionary atonement. All right, and we're going to move kind of quickly through this. There's a lot more discussion in your notes than what we're going to cover. Okay. Now, maybe, maybe I've got a definition here. Okay, the need and purpose of the atonement. Man's problem is sin. Okay? God's solution is the atonement. Now, the purpose of the atonement is to rescue man from the otherwise certain consequences of sin, condemnation, and eternal punishment. It's going to happen unless God rescues it, us from it because we are not capable of solving our sin problem. Okay? Now, I believe God is motivated by his love to provide atonement for us. I think that's expressed in a number of places in Scripture. For God so loved the world. Um, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, etc. Okay? Now, God's holiness and his justice demand the atonement. God's love is not enough to solve our sin problem because God is just and God is holy. And he can't allow sin to go unpunishment, unpunished. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. John 3.36, I cannot quote this out of the top of my head. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God is there because of our sin. Okay. So again, what is the atonement? It's the work that Christ did on the cross that satisfies God's wrath and his justice and enables him to forgive us. All right, some Old Testament illustrations of the atonement. Now, the Hebrew word for atonement is kafar. You've heard the term Yom Kippur. Kippur is the same word as kafar. Okay? Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It was one of the Jewish holy days. The word kafar means to cover. And the idea is kind of visible in the, in the act of putting, putting blood on the mercy seat. Do you know what the mercy seat is? The mercy seat was the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we kind of think of the Ark of the Covenant as sort of being, you know, a steamer trunk or something. It's a, it's a rectangular box with a lid on it. Inside the box were the tablets of the law, Aaron's rod that budded. There was a jar of manna. But each year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go in and he would sprinkle blood on the top of that ark. 
And I've always wondered, did they ever wipe it off? There's no answer in Scripture. Did the holiness of God burn it off? Was it, was it getting thicker and thicker year after year? It's an interesting question. But there seems to be a picture there of the blood sort of covering man's sin so that man's sin isn't visible in contrast to the law of God that's in there. Okay? And you kind of get that from the very meaning of that word kafar or to atone, which means to cover. Okay? Now the main Old Testament illustration of the atonement is in blood sacrifice. And you all understand how they did that. The concept is that a life must be given to pay for the life of the one whose sin is being covered. Now you clearly got an idea of one being substituting for another. Of course in the Old Testament you got an animal substituting for a human. And that seems a little strange because human aren't, humans aren't animals. And we all know the story that those things really didn't accomplish lasting atonement or actual atonement. Now, I think it's important that we understand that the blood sacrifices that God called for in the Old Testament were a gracious provision from God for man, not a way that man figured out to manipulate and fool God into overlooking his sin. The Israelites did this because God said, I will respond in this way if you do this. It wasn't their idea. Now, in its truest sense, in the sense of the atonement that Christ accomplished on the cross, atonement not only covers sin, but ultimately it satisfies God's wrath over sin. Ultimately it pays for sin. But in the Old Testament times, sin was never actually atoned for in the sense of being paid for. It was only covered temporarily. Okay? Now, some specific illustrations of atonement or the, the day of atonement that I spoke of where blood was brought in to atone for the sins of the nation. There was the Passover. You remember that story? God was about to send the destroying angel through Egypt and he said, if you put blood on the lintel of your door according to the prescription that I give you, when the angel sees that, he will pass over that house and not go inside and kill the firstborn son. But if he doesn't see that blood, he will pass through and he will kill. Okay? That blood covered those who were in that household and protected them from the wrath of God. Now, one of the in most interesting ones in the Old Testament is Numbers 25. Do you remember in Numbers 25, the Israelites got into sin with some of the Canaanites. They joined in one of their pagan celebrations. The Canaanites are worshiping one of their pagan gods. They have one of their wild parties and they get into sexual orgies. And a Jewish man grabs this cute little Canaanite honey and he goes off to a tent. And he's in there having his way with her and they're going at it hot and heavy. And Phineas goes in there with a spear and he goes right through the two of them, right when they're in the middle of the act. And scripture says that that act atoned and that God ended at that moment, the punishment that he was bringing upon the nation because of that sin. That was a kind of atonement. Now, I've jazzed up the story a little bit, but I think if you read it, you'll see that it says basically what I've described. All of these are pictured in some sense as sacrifices for sin. Isn't the, the way that Kafar is used in the Old Testament that's right that's 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 absolutely right okay now that's not too clear 
when you only have the Old Testament. But when you get to the New Testament, particularly Romans chapter 3, it says that God had overlooked the sins that were previously committed. Now, I think the argument that's being made in the book of Hebrews, the same thing, is that the blood of, of sheep and goats could not really atone for sin, but God provided it to the Israelites as a way of them expressing to God their need for atonement. And God said, I'll accept that as a covering for now, but that was really sort of payment on credit. And the bill came due when Christ went to the cross and provided actual atonement that paid for the sins that had been temporarily covered by the Old Testament sacrifices. So yes, I think you're right. The Old Testament sacrifices were really a temporary provision. They were acceptable to God, but only acceptable because he had a plan to provide real atonement in the death of Christ on the cross. Lori? I had recently read, and now I'm forgetting where in the New Testament talking about those things being a shadow. Mm-hmm. It's like more of a picture, too. Sure. Oh, absolutely. They were illustrative. I mean, by the time we get to New Testament times and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, God had placed those pictures in the thinking of the Israelites so they could understand the concepts. And, and you're right. It, it's, it's, it, was, it was not only a means for the Israelite to express to God his, his need for atonement, It was God setting up the whole conceptual framework so that when Christ came along, there would be a way to understand what he had done. It was a a long process of teaching, if you want to think about it that way. Absolutely. Okay. Let's get a quick overview of the atonement. The biblical concept of the atonement... Yes, sir. On the Day of Atonement, talk about the scapegoat. Okay. Um, well, there were two goats, weren't they? They would kill one, and they would put his blood on the on the altar, and they would kill the they would take the other one. I'm sorry, they wouldn't kill him. They would confess the sins of the nation of Israel on his head, and they would drive him away in the wilderness. And the idea was that this animal would run and run and run; it would never come back. And God was saying, "Those sins are dealt with forever." Is my understanding of it. Now, would you add something to that? But, but relative to the atonement, okay. which is, we're talking about basically the blood, mm-hmm. okay, was the symbol of the scapegoat that the sins are not remembered? What, is, what was... That's, what my, was that's my understanding. That's my understanding. But even in that case, I would argue that God saying, I will remember them no more, is still looking forward to the provision of the cross. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's more that could be said about the Day of Atonement. Okay. And, I, and I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm probably not prepared to say more. All right. The biblical concept of the atonement is both penal, that means it involves punishment, and it is substitutionary. That means it involves God providing an approved substitute for the sinner. Now, when people talk about vicarious atonement, it basically means the same thing as substitutionary. It means that there's somebody stepping in in the place of another. And Christ is called the vicar. Now, you've heard the Pope called the vicar of Christ, right? That's a blasphemous concept from the Roman Catholic Church. But it does mean that he's the person who takes the place of Christ. Now, (coughs) in the atonement, Christ is the vicar of us. Okay? He takes the place of sinful man when he dies on the cross. Now, here are some key terms that are involved in the atonement, and we'll work through these later on in the course. Substitution and sacrifice, propitiation, Clayton, you brought this one up. This has to do with satisfying God's wrath. Redemption and ransom. Buying man out of his sinful status and the 
consequences of that reconciliation, the restoration of a relationship, justification. This is God saying, I count you sinless. And then forgiveness, which we could argue is really the result of all of these things. We're going to look at these in some detail later. Ah, there is a definition of the atonement coming up. All right? This is for you, Leslie. Okay. The penal substitutionary atonement is that gracious work of God in which the Son, in voluntary cooperation with the Father and the Spirit, died as the substitute for sinners and paid in full the penalty for their sin and their sins to satisfy the demands of the holiness and justice of God. Now note, the atonement covers both sins, meaning the actions that we have performed, and sin, meaning the nature that is in us. Okay? Christ's atoning work covers both of them because we are guilty of both of them, aren't we? Our sinful nature itself condemns us and is an affront to God. And remember, thinking back to what we've talked about regarding the purpose of man to bear the image of God, the very fact that the image that we bear is inaccurate and misrepresents God is guilt it, it is a crime it is worthy of condemnation it's just what I am let alone what I do that is an affront to God questions on this definition anybody are you all with me okay well, let's go forward we're going to do this fairly quickly. We're going to talk about some false views of the atonement. You'd be surprised how many there are. Now, I'm going to present to you, pre present these to you roughly in the order in which they arose in the history of the church. And the correct understanding of the, of the atonement will also appear in this series. Okay? They include the recapitulation theory, the ransom to <coughs> Satan theory, the commercial or satisfaction theory, the moral influence theory, the penal substitution theory, the example or martyr theory, the governmental theory, and the accident theory. Okay? The recapitulation theory of the atonement says that Christ recapitulated all of Adam's experience, including sin but triumphed. Now this is based on the idea that Christ was the second Adam. And the guy who came up with this, I think it was Irenaeus, if I'm not mistaken, kind of took this and ran and probably went a little bit too far. Because I don't think that Christ in any way uh, experienced sin. And I think the value of this theory is that it does recognize that Christ is the last Adam and he is the head of a new race, spiritually speaking. It's 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5. But Christ did not experience sin, and I think most importantly, this theory tends to neglect his death as the fundamental basis of the atonement. It puts too much emphasis on his life and too I'm sorry, yeah, too much emphasis on his life and too little on his death. Okay? Now, second one is the ransom to Satan theory of atonement. This is very popular in popular theology and in our jokes. All of our jokes that talk about dying and going down to hell and seeing Satan there, and he says, welcome. Now, these are all based on this theory, which is not true. This theory says that Christ died to pay a ransom to Satan for sinners. Satan, however, didn't understand that Christ's death would free sinners. He thought, he was going to gain Christ's soul when Christ died on the cross, but Christ tricked him. Okay? Now, the value of this theory 
is that it recognizes the atonement is a ransom for sinners. The, the atonement does buy sinners out from something, but it is not out from the possession of Satan. You know that song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, and there's this 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 um, violining contest, you know. Devil says, if you win, you get this golden violin, and if I win, I get your soul. Satan does not own the souls of the unsaved. He is not the king of hell. He has never been there. He doesn't want to go there. Um, but this is very common in popular theology. The criticism of this view is that the true at atonement ransoms men from sin, not from Satan. The revolution... Uh, I'm sorry, ransom the Satan theory pictures Satan as the one whose justice must be satisfied, not God. Okay? It also pictures God dealing deceptively with Satan and falsely pictures Satan as owning the souls of the unsaved, which just isn't true. But you can see, can you see how this kind of fits in with Roman Catholic theology? Okay, then there's the commercial or satisfaction theory of the atonement. Now, this one arose in the Middle Ages in the medieval period, and it's a very medieval concept. The death of Christ satisfied the Father's honor, which was injured by man's disobedience, opening the way for him to forgive men. It's not God's justice that was injured. It was God's honor. Okay? I think the value of this theory is that it does recognize that sin is against God, but it doesn't fully recognize the seriousness of sin. I think this theory elevates God's honor over his holiness and justice, and I think it minimizes the substitutionary aspects of the atonement. It does not deal with God's holiness or justice. This is a lot of stuff to absorb at once, isn't it? I don't expect you to remember all this by any means. You can read more about it in the notes. And even the notes are not that deep on these. Okay. And there's the moral influence theory of the atonement. This one's interesting. Christ's death was not necessary to atone for sin, but rather it demonstrates God's compassion for his creatures in order to awaken in them a repentant response to God. How mushy can you get? Okay. I think this theory has some value in that it recognizes the love of God and it recognizes man's need to be reconciled with God, to be restored to a right relationship with him. But I think it minimizes the offense of sin. I think it makes God's holiness and justice secondary to his love and ultimately it makes the death of Christ unnecessary because it's just a demonstration of love. Couldn't God have demonstrated his love some other way? And arguably he has. And I think this also denies the substitutionary aspects of the atonement. Okay, then we come to the penal substitutionary atonement, uh, theory of the atonement. This theory, Christ the sinless Son of God took upon himself the penalty that should have been borne by man and in so doing, satisfied the holiness and justice of God. Value? Correct. <laughs> Criticisms? None. That was fast. Okay. The example or martyr theory of the atonement. This theory says that Christ did not atone for sin. Instead, he gave an inspiring example of faith and obedience as the way to gain eternal life. Here, Peter, watch me. I can walk on the water. Now you try it too. That's what our Catholic neighbor told us. Really? Yeah. There are people who think this is what it was about. Okay? There is some value... In this theory, it emphasizes the example of Christ's obedience, which is repeatedly brought up in 1 Peter. But there's a lot of things wrong with it. Okay, It essentially de denies the depravity and guilt of man. It basically says that man is capable of pleasing God. He just has to be inspired to do it. You know, 
<coughs> he needs a rah, 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 you know. We need change. We need to sacrifice. Does that sound familiar? Um, it views the atonement as unnecessary. It certainly is capable of denying the divinity of Christ. It really denies the need for salvation. We don't have to be saved by God because our problem is not that we're really lost. It's not that we can't save ourselves. It's that we're misguided. We're not properly motivated. We haven't been given that kick in the pants to get us going. All right? I think it denies the substitutionary work of Christ and it really doesn't say anything about satisfying God's wrath over sin. Uh, I don't know. I couldn't speak to that. It's a good question. Now, the governmental theory of atonement says that God is a ruler seeking to enforce his law, not a deity whose holiness is offended by sin. In other words, God is concerned about the here and now, not so much about what is past. This theory says that Christ's death death demonstrates the seriousness of sin, lest the ruler appear lenient, but it's a token payment that allows God to set the law aside and forgive. Now, honestly, I do not understand how this follows from this. Don't ask me to explain it. I don't get it. But I think the, the first two lines are probably the heart of this thing. God is a ruler seeking to enforce his law and he doesn't want to look like he's lenient. But of course, what are these people really saying? He's lenient. Yeah, that's right. Okay? I think this theory does recognize the seriousness of sin. It obviously talks about the importance of God's law. But... I think it draws a false distinction between God's character and his law. It pictures the value of the atonement primarily in its effects upon men rather than its effects upon God. It denies the necessity of payment for sin. Now stop and think about that for a minute. Did you ever stop to think that the atoning work of Christ first and foremost affects God? It satisfies his wrath over sin, making the way for him to forgiveness, forgive us open. Okay? God acted in the atonement to satisfy his own law. It's a very interesting thing. I think sometimes we let that slip out of view. Now, the last view is the accidental theory of the atonement. This was held by Schweitzer. He said that Christ was an ordinary man who developed a Messiah complex and was swept away by events beyond his control. Isn't that the theme of Jesus Christ Superstar, basically? I don't know if any of you ever saw that. I didn't see it, but I listened to the music when I was growing up, and that seemed to be what it was saying. Okay? What's the value of this? Absolutely none. What's the criticism? It's blasphemous and utterly without biblical basis. Okay? That's the last one. <laughs> Any comments or observations before we quit? Vicki? Um, could you comment on the scripture that says he came sin for us? Yeah, I think that's um, the end of 2 Corinthians 5, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that's, that's an interesting passage. Let me make sure I've got the right place. Yeah, it's the last verse of 2 Corinthians 5. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A lot of theologians understand the statement as having this force, Vicki. He made him who knew no sin to be a sacrifice for sin for us. Okay? 
it's kind of using a Jewish figure of speech in which, I'm not going to get this quite right, but in which the result is substituted for the cause or something like that. Um, I don't think it's saying that Christ became sinful, but I do think it is referring to the fact that when Christ was on the cross, the Father essentially transferred our sins from us legally onto him and then poured out his wrath on the one who bore all those sins at that moment. Um, but it would be a mistake to say that in that process Christ became sinful in his nature. It's better to say that in that event Christ bore our sins. The weight of them was upon him, but they didn't change his essential nature. He didn't experience I don't, yeah, I don't think he experienced sin, but I think he experienced the wrath of God for sin. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I have these vague memories of this horrible feeling when I was a little kid, when I was caught doing something wrong, and my father was just exploding. And I felt like I wanted to shrink down to the size of an atom and fall in a crack in the floor. Because I just felt horrible. You know, guilty, unclean, and I was being the object of his wrath. And this may not be fair, but I kind of picture Christ experiencing that in our place when the Father looked down on him, on the cross, from heaven, and that's when Christ says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was experiencing at that moment what we would experience at the moment that he cast us into eternity out of his presence forever. That's kind of the way I picture that. I think he, I think he felt the shame. I think he felt the wrath. I'm not sure that I'd say he felt the guilt. I'm, I'm just not sure about that. I'm inclined. I'm inclined to say that he experienced the wrath, but I don't know if he felt the guilt per se. That, that's a tough one for me to to be sure of that. Becca, did you have a question? Okay. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. When I was, and we were going through these, I was thinking about um, the time when Satan will have the rule and we're going, and how he will be the counterfeit. And that, how easily he can blind people because he gives just enough truth in each one of these to so that men cannot see Absolutely. And understand, you know, he's the great counterfeiter. That is, is each one you gave a value or, you know, something that was <coughs> true in there, and then the opposing you what's wrong. And so people who are not Christians are not able to see because right. he blinded them. That's right. And he's given just enough truth. Right, to make, the, there's enough flavor in the poison bait to make you want it. Yeah, and so they can yeah, I mean, it's truth is a difficult thing to narrow down. And you're right. A little bit of truth can make people go with it and say, yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to go that way. You know, we see it in politics. We see it in science. We see it in world religions. Um, the others of you have noticed this. As you go through this, you hear echoes of things you've heard before, don't you? Now, nobody ever came up to you and said, I believe in the ransom to Satan theory of atonement. But that's out there all over the place, isn't it? Um, the, these things are part of our cultural heritage and even our religious heritage in the sense that it's, it's around us in the world. And, and I, I think it's very helpful to look at errors and compare them to the truth because it highlights the truth and also exposes the errors. Well, when the 
you're learning here, you're going to be sharing those with other people. You know, and the potential for you to influence other believers and unbelievers to lead them out of error and into the truth of God, you know, is enormous. I mean, every time God puts in our hands a new understanding, an accurate understanding of something in Scripture that we didn't have before, you know, we now have a responsibility to share it with others, to live according to it, and uh, you know to pass it on. Father, thank you for the time you've given to us. Thank you for the privilege of having time to study your word, to think a little bit more deeply about these things. Father, we ask that between now and when we meet again, you would protect and provide for us that you would make us wise against temptation that you would make us patient as we look to you to meet our needs you would call our thoughts back to your word you would cause us to compare what we are being told with the standard which is your word Please dismiss us with your blessing. Grant us your protect, protection as we go home. And strength for tomorrow and the week ahead to walk with you. We pray this in your son's name.